welcome to another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills, Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine, and this podcast is being uh, sponsored by Raytheon, and the SPY-6 family of radars from Raytheon Missiles and Defense is not just revolutionary, it's ready now. SPY-6 is being integrated on ships across the fleet to provide greater range, increased sensitivity, and more accurate discrimination for air and missile defense. Learn more at rtx.com slash spy6. Well, um, it's good to be back with you all again today uh, here in uh, now the beginning of the dog days of August. Uh, we have a wonderful article in the current issue um, about the U.S. Navy's war against the slave trade. Uh, we've covered this previously in the magazine. We talked about the Africa Squadron. It was founded in 1842. Um, but now we're looking at uh, the 18, late 1850s and... Um, the time when the war against the slave trade picked up steam. And here to tell us about this is one of my current favorite Age of Sail authors in the magazine, William J. Prom, who we welcome back to the podcast. Bill, how have you been? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again. So um, this is a great piece. Uh, and uh, it was really some, felt really good to run this and learn about some unsung heroes. I'd heard about a couple of these officers from later things they did, but I did not realize what they had done. And the, that time before the Civil War, when um, the advent of steam into the fleet really gave the war against the slave runners a shot in the arm. So why don't you tell us about that and maybe talk first about how the Africa Squadron, which had been around for over 25 years at this point, had sort of always been fighting an uphill battle. And this really gave the whole effort the um, extra impetus that it had needed a long time. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, yes, as you mentioned, the, the Africa Squadron started 1842. It's kind of the result of the Webster-Ashburton Treaty. Uh, and a part of that was that, frankly, for the first half of the 19th century, uh, Americans had an issue with the slave trade uh, and that especially starting 1807 when uh, the British outlawed the slave trade, uh, the U.S. followed the following year in 1808, but we never really uh, put some so much enforcement into that. There were just other issues. There wasn't the political will, uh, frankly, to, to go towards that. And that made uh, the United States kind of a, a flag of convenience for the slave trade and that we were very, uh, we did not want to, uh, participate in kind of an, an international uh, enforcement of uh, suppression of the slave trade. And if you consider the War of 1812, uh, one of the main issues for that, uh, 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 trying to end impressment and sailors' rights, frankly, we weren't too keen in the 1840s still about the idea of British sailors or British ships being able to stop American flagged uh, ships and searching them. Um, it's fairly understandable. So it's actually surprising that we eventually came to an agreement allowing some right of search between the two nations. Uh, and again, that's what led to the Afri Africa Squadron. And uh, with that, as you mentioned, kind of an uphill battle there, a big part of it was that we, we sent squadrons, uh, some bigger, some smaller, um, out to Africa where they essentially would try and hunt down slave traders trying to make their way uh, to the Caribbean most is was the most often uh, location, uh, Cuba and uh, Brazil being the main destinations for the slave trade. 
-hmm. And uh, they had, yes, they had, so they had a, a variety of issues. Part, uh, I'd say it's uh, multifaceted. Part of it being a long way from the U.S., uh, they needed to create uh, their own uh, supply depots. And they there was a lot of uh, consternation between uh, squadron commanders and Department of the Navy on where that should be. Uh, with different opinions, uh, and no, none of them ever really aligning, made for a long swath of coast that they had to cover off of Africa and a long distance they had to go back to resupply. And then also still not really cooperating with the British in their effort. Uh, so it came made for a fairly lackluster um, execution, as it were. Mm -hmm. I'd point out real quickly the um, beautiful uh, opener to your article. Uh, it shows the uh, U.S. frigate Constitution making her last ever capture uh, while serving as flagship of the Africa Squadron. Um, she's about to celebrate her 225th birthday this October, so it's kind of interesting to see that was her last uh, capture uh, at sea. Um, but she was the flagship of a fleet that you pointed out was um, always had a daunting task ahead of it. Yeah. And it was a thankless job and um, only very marginally successful. You mentioned these, uh, these ships, U S U S owned ships were the ones we were busting for this. And it's quite, it, it reminds me of the craftiness of the uh, rum runners during prohibition, the way they'll like register it here, put whatever flag on it they can think of, use different names over time. And, these uh, people engaged in this illicit slave trafficking. Um, uh, it wasn't just ships uh, from Dixie, was it? It's like I no. think the Mohawk was actually uh, registered was originally like New York registry. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of shady people were involved in this, um, and it's kind of not unlike the uh, drug interdiction of today and the um, Coast Guard's prohibition war in the twenties. And you see that here in the uh, heinous trafficking in human beings. But uh, what changed? What was the game changer that um, made things turn around in the 1850s? Yeah. So, uh, as, as I mentioned, the we came to an agreement with the British over right of search, and that we uh, we were uh, we basically agreed, like, okay, we don't want you searching our ships, so but we'll actually go out and uh, hunt down these slave traffickers. Uh, slave traders uh, ourselves, but we weren't. And there were a lot more uh, American flagged ships, American crewed ships. And that's part of the problem also, as you mentioned, that uh, the kind of the craftiness and that a ship will be uh, built in one place, crewed in another, equipped in a third even, and crew still shifting. Uh, and you'll try and get uh, some other uh, crews from other nations as well. Um, so yeah, it was a complicated task, and uh, uh, frankly, we were we weren't doing holding up our end uh, of the agreement uh, in trying to hunt down the slave traffickers. And then in the the eighteen fifties, uh, there were there was uh, uh, what's it called the the Paraguay uh, incident or uh, expedition, where there was uh, the Water Witch was fired upon um, while doing a uh, a survey of a river. And uh, about a year later, we sent what was at the time the largest squadron ever assembled uh, by the Navy uh, down uh, down to Paraguay for more or less a show of force uh, to uh, to protect our our assets there. 
Um, and one of the surprising uh, uh, events that came from that was the number of steamships that the Navy didn't have yet. So we leased a variety of them for that expedition. And it got to the point that uh, it was more cost effective to simply buy them out. Uh, and that's what we did. And our uh, Secretary of the Navy decided, okay, let, let's send them to Cuba. Uh, we, we have these ships. Everybody seems to be thinking that they're going to work better in the littorals that worked well in Paraguay. Uh, a lot of the Navy uh, in the Africa Squadron had been asking for uh, steamers. Uh, so this small detachment of the home squadron was sent down to Cuba to, to start uh, enforcing uh, suppression of the slave trade there in uh, September of 1859. And the screw steamers turned out to be ideally suited for this mission, yes. did they not? They could get into the literals better, et cetera, et cetera. And yes, yeah, they, they can loiter and patrol, and patrol against current or with, with current uh, much easier. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and they did have a trade-off and that you're, you have, uh, you go through fuel, you don't really have that issue with sales. Um, and uh, you also have more equipment that needs uh, repair. So you do have those trade-offs, although these ships were sail-powered as well. Um, but one of the benefits that they had operating off of Cuba was lots of opportunities for places to go to do those repairs nearby. Uh, one of, again, the, the drawbacks of the Africa Squadron operating off the coast of Africa, that they had to go uh, 400, maybe up to 1,000 miles to get to their uh, nearest depot to try and if they needed to to recall. Right. It seems to me there's a good lesson in here about you need the right ship for the right mission. and um, Absolutely. Because uh, within that uh, first year, that quartet of little screw steamers really just racked up a, um, quite a string of uh, seizures and captures. And uh, it's quite an amazing feat. Absolutely, because it, it's not even that they were heavily armed or anything like that. I think most of them, it was only uh, four 32-pounders 30, that they had. So, it, but that—that's all they needed. They weren't—they were there more for a law enforcement mission, as it were. Uh, they're not out there trying to sink enemy combatants, uh, and they, yeah, they—they they were the ideal, ideal tool uh, for that. And so, it is quite impressive that. Just those four were able to do so much, and it's because it was that perfect alignment of uh, the right uh, right asset for the mission, uh, a, a demand uh, based approach towards uh, suppression of the slave trade, whereas uh, the Africa Squadron kind of had to patrol the African coast. Cuba is still large, but it's uh, patrolling hundreds of miles instead of thousands, uh, and then. Uh, when uh, slavers were leaving Africa, it was common they they would just wait because uh, the British and American Navy couldn't be everywhere all at once. Uh, so even if they they saw somebody getting ready to depart and what looked like a, a slaver, they might be called away, and that slaver will just wait until it's the opportune time. Uh, but when you're going to Cuba, basically you have uh, a finite amount of places you're going. And at that point, you need to get there fast. Uh, I think I have a quote in there from uh, one of the commanders of these ships talking about the conditions of the, the ships after the mid-Atlantic or after the passage across the Atlantic. 
and they're they're running out of water, running out of food. People are usually suffering from disease. They can't just sit and wait for the opportune time. They have to get to the coast and unload uh, their human cargo uh, as soon as they can, which made made the task all the easier for our Navy uh, operating off Cuba. Yeah, the four officers who um, commanded these vessels, uh, they really did heroic work uh, that year. And they seemed to really believe, the more they did it, they seemed more and more to be affected and to believe in the mission that they were on. I think of Tunis Craven, yeah. uh, skipper of the, was he the Mohawk? Uh, yes, yeah, he was the Mohawk. And he also went on to command the Crusader as well later uh, after this incident. I mean, um, the the things he sees, he's horrified by yes. and, you know, just disgusted by. And uh, that comes through in his official reports uh, and quite um, something to read from uh, a report from 1859. And that that's that level of uh, just absolute disbelief and recoiling at what he's seeing. Yes. Uh, that's more than just a modern sentiment. That's a human sentiment from any time. And uh, to see that back from, you know. A century past it's, it's um it's quite telling i felt like. yeah they were he uh that was definitely my impression that he was he was moved by it um because he spoke pa or wrote passionately about the depravity of it and, and those those commanders are uh as you mentioned at the top yeah uh several of them went on to some acclaim during the civil war on, on both sides of the conflict and i had been vaguely familiar with some of them from that and had knew nothing of this. And there, I feel like there's definitely more to the story of them as well, because they're, they're fascinating people. And that you have uh, like uh, John Moffat or Maffet is uh, one, especially born in North Carolina. Um, I don't believe he was a slave owner, but he was sympathetic to the South. He, he went to the Confederate Navy uh, just a few years after this. But when you read some of his reports, how he was, he was passionate about doing his mission. Like he was very successful at this and that he, uh, I'd love to dig into his mind a bit more and kind of understand where, where the through line is and his dedication to duty in this and how that strays and feels the, the need to join the Confederacy afterwards. Um, Oh, yeah, that's yeah. that is such a complex period of years yeah. there for that very reason. It's it's hard for us to get our heads around that because we want to be so absolutist about things like yeah. North and South Union and Confederate. Yeah. Um, yeah, even uh, Fabius Stanley, one of the other lieutenants in this, one of the other commanders, he was also from North Carolina, mm -hmm. but he went on to be a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy uh, by yeah. the end of the Civil War. There were there are some pro-union um, officers yeah. and uh, sailors and, and whatnot before the yeah. war that remained pro-union, um, yeah. and you don't hear about them as much. Uh, it's a, yeah, well, I'm speaking to you from Maryland, and we're the very uh, epicenter of that <laughs> complexity. Where the governor yeah. at the time of the Civil War broke out was a slave owner from uh, Dorchester County, but he's also uh, pro-union through and through, and was completely against seceding. So. Yep. There were plenty of people in Maryland who weren't, but he was. Another yeah. example, I mean, it, it kind of, there's this in-between ground there. I think someone like Maffitt would have felt like North Carolina was his homeland. Yep. And the United States was sort of like this EU that his home country yes. belonged to. And, Absolutely. you know, it could come down to things like that. But he was the one of the four that was actually a veteran of the war against the slave 
trade going into this. So he had some prior history of uh, sort of fighting this war, so to speak. Yes. But yeah, there, there's a lot. Each one of these, there's more to tell about them. Um, and that comes out of that amazing year they had capturing these slave vessels. Uh, where were they? I guess the, the main um, sort of places where the slave sales were going on would have been in Cuba at this point, right? I mean... Yes, yeah. Brazil was the other uh, destination, uh, but they, I'm trying to remember the year that uh, the slave trade ended there, but it, yeah, basically became Cuba at that point. Uh, some are still get, going to Brazil, but the, pri primarily into Cuba. And you mentioned how there had been a cholera epidemic that had wiped yeah. out the slave population. So that actually um, yeah. really ramped the up the, the traffic. Uh, yes. In response to that. So they really did have their hands full with this, even though they were now in more effective uh, vessels to carry it out. Um, one of the most famous um, and horrific images of a slave ship, and I've seen this in so many places, and we have it in the magazine because it specifically applies to this story. Um, I believe it's the, mo the uh, it's the wildfire. Yes. Yes. Um, I don't know if we can get that on there, but... Um, it's a, an arresting image and a famous one uh, from this period. And I've seen it uh, in many books and many things. So it was really fascinating for me to see the specific story of the wildfire. And it was one of the busts that um, actually Tunis Craven made in the Mohawk. Yes. Um, and the conditions are just um, beyond appalling. Uh, yes, absolutely. My, uh, well, for in uh, doing the research for this, I had... Uh, actually sought out my old uh, honors thesis advisor, Scott Harmon, I uh, was a uh, former director of the museum there at the Naval Academy, uh, that his, uh, his thesis uh, or his doctoral thesis was on suppression of the slave trade. And um, in, in talking to him about that, uh, he would actually, he had mentioned that uh, it was actually not uncommon for those hunt, uh, hunting slave traders to be able to do it by sense of smell essentially, that if you were downwind of a fully loaded slave ship like the Wildfire, where you had hundreds of slaves on there, you there's no escaping the, the odor of it. Right. Yeah, that's a, that was Absolutely a common random. thing that you would hear about the slavers. Uh, yeah. the, the, the smell was detectable yeah. maybe before, you, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, that's one more underscoring of how horrific it all was. Well, um Let's take that one ship, for example. Those slaves are then taken to Key West for processing and uh, yes. north for further processing. And I believe it was um, Craven himself. Yeah, it was Craven again. Yeah, he argued heavily against that because of the, just the humanity of it. They, these yeah. People won't survive another trip like this. They yeah. have to be the, the end of the line for them here. Yeah, it's an additional punishment, essentially, is the way. And because, yeah, that that was the letter where he was really giving that impassioned uh, argument to uh, Secretary Tausi, the, the Secretary of the Navy, that uh, he had wanted uh, the Secretary of the Navy thought, yeah, bring them up north, up to Boston. We'll uh, adjudicate everything there, release everyone and explain. Yeah, like they're you don't understand what they've been through. This is not worth it. And and. To Telsey's credit, like he he relented immediately. Uh, it was uh, uh, so yeah, Craven definitely made a uh, a strong case uh, for that, and basically nothing more was said of it. Uh, and that he agreed, yeah, it's just more expeditious uh, to uh, 
take care of it down in Key West. You're right. That is definitely to the SecNav's credit uh, in yeah. 1859. Um, well, you know, this is just a not too far off from the absolute shooting war breaking out um, in the United States. And it's kind of a on the eve of the Civil War, um, you know, long after the uh, overseas slave trade has been abolished, it's still flourishing. And um, it just uh, it just kind of boggles your mind to read it. You know, um, what would you say um, is a takeaway from this regarding the human side of it? Let's go back to the sort of the naval side of things. Um, can you think of any sort of parallel nowadays where there's an ongoing mission? It's kind of just sort of ongoing, but not really getting as far as it should. And then um, a superior vessel type of some sort, or it could just be a platform or something, you know, a system comes along and actually just completely changes it and gives them what they needed to do what they needed to do. I feel like, you could find all sorts of parallels to this yep. kind of happy ending, if you will, um, yep. up until our own time. Yeah, and I think Come on, come on. Come on. We've lost uh, connectivity with Bill here. Um, so let's give him a moment to come back on. Let me see if I can find that picture I was talking about. Here we go. Let me show you this. Uh, see if I can get this on the screen. Many of you, I think, will recognize this image. Um, Barely doing it justice in this low-tech kind of way, but it, if anything ever illustrated the horrific reality of a slave ship, it's an image like this. It's from Harper's Weekly. After um, Tunis Craven captured this slave vessel, um, it attracted um, a story from Harper's, and this is just one of a series of pictures they did. Bill, are you back? Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Uh, just had a... Quick power outage, knocked out my internet, but I'm up on the phone now. Oh, <laughs> uh, we're still bound by such things in this day and yes. age. Okay, well, yeah, this still works. You still look. Yeah, good. yeah. Okay. Well, we're about to talk about historical parallels to yeah. the right ship for the right mission or the right system coming along, and it, get, it like gives a shot in the arm to an yeah. otherwise struggling mission. Um, yeah, and I think one of the things really to considered with this too is that it, it wasn't like the these steamers were a kind of a the new sexy thing or anything like that steam power had been around since uh, like the claremont uh, claremont was launched i think in 1807 and uh the navy had been using uh steamships since uh 1814 uh although the it had been some time it'll it would be some time until they were really effectively used and it's not like the these ships were uh, again heavily armed or anything like that, and they they weren't even purpose built warships. The they were uh, civilian ships that 
uh, went through, were converted to a Navy ship. So they, they needed uh, extensive uh, uh, overhauls because basically they, with those guns, they need more crew, more crew need, means more birthing, more birthing also, more crew means more stores and then need more pumps. And it, it, uh, it kind of escalates at the amount of changes that they had to go. And so the, the flexibility uh, of that, I think is, and that worth considering and that uh, there, there's maybe uh, when, as you're saying, like uh, trying to think through uh, if an operation is stagnant, essentially, um, then maybe it's not necessarily thinking of like what what new system do we need, but maybe what what new way can we use what we have already is uh, maybe one of the lessons I would take from this, and that it's uh, maybe trying, but yeah, trying that that different approach and uh, really looking at what the problem is as well because i think that was one of the key my key takeaway at least from for why they were so successful uh was this uh kind of a demand focused approach and going for cuba rather than going for africa uh, yeah i guess those, those would be some of my lessons that i would take away from this mm -hmm. um it's amazing how much of our history has unfolded around cuban waters um yes it just keeps uh, resurfacing and, uh, you know, from um, this to the splendid little war to um, the Cuban Missile Crisis, which will have its 60th anniversary coming up here. Yep. Uh, stay tuned to the magazine for more on that, folks. Uh, we've got some good coverage of that coming up. Well, Bill, um, I'm curious if uh, you have anything else you're working on that you'd like to share with us, because uh, you, you've every you're batting a thousand with us. Every article <laughs> um, we've run of yours has been like, a new look, a new slant on a chapter of the age of sale that uh, you, you've heard of this, but you haven't seen this part of it that was key yeah. to it. You know? um, so I commend you for that. And um, Thanks. Uh, you might not want to talk about it, but uh, if there's anything you're currently at work on, you know, be curious to hear about it. No, I, I really appreciate it. That's kind of you. Um, so yeah, uh, right now, uh, basically I have a 10, 10 day old, at home so that's definitely putting an impact as far as the output goes uh <laughs> right now you're you're actually catching me during uh paternity leave um yes thank you yes my goodness <laughs> yeah um and then as far as uh other projects yeah i know uh uh the previous the last article i had done for naval history before this about the the noah and adam brown the the shipbuilders during Great the war of 1812 geez. that's definitely that's a story I think that there's a lot more to tell with that, definitely. Uh, it's something I I think it's been kind of stuck in my head for several years now, trying to, uh, to figure out where, where to go next with that. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, always on the lookout for uh, yeah new opportunities uh, or new stories to, to tell um, in that frame. And I definitely, because uh, I know... For this one, you you reached out to me about uh, trying to find something for this, and I'm I'm glad I'm glad I did, or glad that you did, and I'm really happy that I found this story because it's uh, one I didn't know, and I was very excited to tell it. Yeah, well, if, if ever you want to find someone, get someone to find something in a pre-existing, yeah. well-known, well-trod narrative yeah. that hasn't been done yet, 
you're the go-to. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. I contact you and lo and behold, uh, yeah. this, this came of it. It's a great piece. I recommend it to everyone. It's called When the War When the, the War Against the Slave Trade Picked Up Steam. And it's in the current issue of Naval History Magazine. Highly recommend you uh, check it out. Um, Bill, it's always been a pleasure having you on here and uh, look forward to having you in the magazine again. And we'll certainly have you on here again when we do. All right. Uh, congratulations, Dad. By the way, yeah. I smoke cigars. So just saying. <laughs> here, uh, so um, that's some good news we've uh, delivered to the world here on the Naval History Podcast. Bill Prom is now the proud father of a 10-day-old. So yeah. <laughs> way to go, my friend. Well, thanks for joining us again. Um, and thank you all as well for uh, being here with us for another Naval History edition of the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Eric Mills. And we are thank our sponsor, Raytheon Missiles and Defense, which is setting the pace of performance with the SPY-6 family of radars. Actively being integrated across the fleet, SPY-6 provides the clearest possible picture of the battle space with modular multi-mission capabilities that make it the most advanced radar on Earth. Learn more at rtx.com SPY slash SPY-6. And again, appreciate you joining us. And if you haven't joined us in the macro sense, as in joining the Naval Institute, I highly invite you to do that as well. Um, just go to the prompt there you see on the Chiron, usni.org slash join. Be part of the larger conversation of the Navy past, present, and future. It's all happening here at the Naval Institute. And until the next time, um, fair winds and following seas to you all. Farewell.